0: Whenever I go into a room in Israel nowadays, always an elderly lady would come to me and say, I used to know your father. And I say, that's very sweet. And she said, no, 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 closely. I used to know him closely.
1: (laughs) From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, And this is Schmaltzy. Today on Schmaltzy, a double-header season finale. We'll hear two original live stories from the stage, and then both storytellers will meet me back in the studio for a deeper dive into their stories. First up, Gil Hovav. Gil is Israel's leading culinary journalist and television personality. His great-grandfather, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, is credited with reviving and modernizing the Hebrew language. Candies from Heaven, Gil's memoir about coming of age in Jerusalem, has been published in English, if you want to check it out. Here's Gil from the stage at a special edition of Shmaltzi at Bethat Futsot in Tel Aviv.
0: So, when they're, we're talking about queens, that's me. Um, when I was growing up in Jerusalem of the 60s and 70s, we would have uh, kubane branches at my Yemenite grandma's in Jerusalem. Uh, kubane is the very festive Yemenite loaf of bread baked overnight and served for brunch on Shabbat. Uh, the Yemenite proverb goes that uh, when kubane is on the table, all other breads should kneel down. Uh, because kubane is the queen, and yes, bread is feminine. Um, So every Shabbat morning, my mother, who wasn't my grandma's daughter, she was just married to her son, would wake us up in the morning very early, like, say, 6.30, get up, get up, get up already, dress up, dress up, we have to leave, we have to go, they're going to eat all our kubane, and we would start walking to my grandma's house, We lived in a quite well-to-do neighborhood in Jerusalem. My grandma's house was 20 minutes away in a poor neighborhood in Jerusalem. And throughout the journey, my mom would say, come on, lift your feet, come on, don't drag, gilly, gilly, move on, move on. Don't stop, don't play, let's go, they're going to eat all our kubane. Because Yemenite families are very big. My, my My Yemenite grandma had seven children and 25 grandchildren. And the kubane pot was very small. So we all had to get to, to get to my grandma's on time. And my grandma would say, come on, come on. They're driving from Tiberias, from Ranana, from Beersheba Move on, move on. And then she would look at us and say, kids, no seconds. Remember that. Don't ask for seconds. The pot is small. The family is big. If grandma is going to see that there's not enough food for everybody, she's going to be very offended. And you, little one... She would look at me, you think that you're a smart one, right? You think that if you say that this is the best food you've ever had in your life, we don't understand that you want seconds. We do. And if I hear any word about seconds, I'm going to strangle you with my own hands. Okay? A Jewish mother. Okay. Then we get to my grandmother's and by the gate of the house, we see six cars of my six uncles and aunts parked already. She, from Tiberias, they got here. And when I tell you to get up early, when I tell you to dress up quickly, when I tell you not to choose the shirt, it doesn't matter. You don't listen to me. Now there's no kubane for you. Good for you. We get inside. They didn't start eating. There is kubane. Okay, my mother goes from one unto another saying, No seconds. Remember, if I hear of anyone asking for seconds, this is the end of you. Okay, my grandma calls us to the kitchen. The kitchen was tiny, much smaller than this stage. And the kubane is baked in a sealed pot. So she would hold the pot and look at my mom. My mom wasn't her daughter, but as she said, I love her most. So my mom would look at my grandma and say, now! And my grandma would lift the, the lid off the pot and immediately, you know, this amazing aroma of yeast in all over the kitchen. And we would all start inhaling and everybody would say, don't breathe too much, don't breathe too much. There's not enough vapor for everybody. Okay. My grandmother starts taking apart the kubane and miraculously, there was one slice per person. We were about 30 people, one perfect slice per person. Not only one slice per person, but each of us got what we wanted. My mom loved the burnt part from the bottom. She got it. I, the little one, loved the soft part from the middle. I got it. My brother liked the upper crust. He got it. Everybody got what they wanted. And for five minutes, there was this complete silence of good food. You know, you don't hear anyone talking. And after five minutes, we found ourselves just picking crumbs with our fingers from the tablecloth. Putting it in our mouth, and we knew that for one week now we're not going to have any kubane. And then every week we had the same ceremony. My grandma would look into the pot and say, Ah, there's one extra slice. <laughs> Anyone for seconds? And my mom would say, but ah, nobody speaks. And we would all do this. And we all knew that it is so unfair, but it would be like this every week. My mother would look at us like this, and after 30 seconds of silence, she would say, Nobody? I'll have it.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, Gil. I absolutely love that story, and obviously I'm craving Kubané now.
0: (laughs) I'm craving Kubané, and I'm missing them so much, you know, my mom and my grandma. Kubané is about love, and uh, for a few minutes there, I was with them at the table.
1: One question I need to know right now. What happened when a family member brought an unexpected guest to Shabbat lunch?
0: I, I, I assume that my grandma would c- cut a slice in half because I don't remember even one incident of, of anyone not getting kubane.
1: I have a lot more questions for you. But first, we're going to dive into another Schmalzi story. It's from the chef Anat Admoni. you know Anat
0: Of course. I know Enat. I know her restaurant and her books, and I love her dearly.
1: Good to know. For those of you that don't know Enat, she is the chef and owner of Balabusta and the beloved falafel chain, Taim. Her latest book, Shuk, takes an in-depth look into Israeli food market culture and cuisine. She was born and raised in Bnei Brak, just outside of Tel Aviv, and now calls Brooklyn home. Here's Enat from the Schmalti stage at the 14th Street Y.
2: When I was a kid, I never thought I can have more embarrassing father as my dad. But now when I have two kids of my own, I know it could be much worse. (laughs) When my son Liam was five years old, I walked in on him trying to suck his own penis. (laughs) It was crazy, but it was right after shower. So at least I know the boy have great hygiene. I was screaming, what are you doing? Even though it was pretty clear. He said, mommy, I'm trying to lick my penis. And then he asked me, mom, why God didn't give men a longer neck or at least a longer tongue? And I said, because if it did, men will stay at home all day and human race will be extinct. So you see, it could be much worse. At least my dad never told story like that about me on stage. (laughs) But at that time, as a kid, I did things my dad was the most embarrassing dad. For once, he would talk to stranger on the street. Once we were walking in Jaffa, and he he would run to a couple on the way to the wedding, taking pictures, want to give them a marriage advice. He ran to them. I was just like... Okay. he was one to them and said, you know, I've been married for 45 years and the most important things is to compromise. Ha! I thought that's funny coming from a man that never compromised for an inch. He never lie. He never filtered. He never even minimized. The guy will never ever go over the speed limit, even if my mom would need to give birth on a back seat. <laughs> He will be hiding, my mom had a small shop in Nebrak. he will hide in behind a tree to see if a customer get inside, so she will write in a receipt so she don't steal tax money from the government. But the one thing you would not compromise is schug. Schug is a yamanide, beautiful, spicy salsa that my dad was super fond of. So, even though my mom will do most of the cooking, my dad will always make this hook. He will go to the market, usually shuka caramel. He will grab this beautiful little spicy peppers, shata and some cilantro. Of course, on the way, he will talk to all the vendors for hours. He will get back home, take the meat grinder out of the pantry and start the process. You know, it was such a strong smell that we all felt like we we're going to ch- shock. Then he's going to put all the shog inside as small jars and keep it in a refrigerator. So as kids, we never went to restaurants between a Yamanai dad and a Persian mom spending money on the things you can actually make it at home, it's just a waste. But after years of my mom nagging, you never take me anywhere. You never buy me present. We never go to a restaurant. My dad decided to surprise her and actually he surprise us all. He decided to take all of us on one of the biggest anniversary to Asian Restaurant, a super fancy restaurant in Tel Aviv. We all got so excited. We put our best clothes. He put his nicest suit. And my mom looked like she have nothing to complain about, which was super refreshing. <laughs> we all get into this beautiful restaurant. We kind of like looking around, white tablecloth, cushy chairs and stuffy waiters. Uh We're sitting down. My dad look at the menu, super terrified from the prices, but trying to look cool. And then we decided to order the duck, the whole duck. The waiters come on a cart and start carving beautiful slices of duck put on my dad's plate. I can see on the side of my eyes that my dad reached to my mom' purse just to grab the jar of schug. With no shame or hesitation, He take the jar of schug and open it up and just put a big dollop on top of his duck. We like that. We look at the waiter, the waiter look at us. We look at my dad. He doesn't give a shit. (laughs) And we all just want to die. (laughs) Not long after, I moved away. Then I went to the military. Then I lived in Europe for a few years. Then I came to New York. Then I have an husband, and then much better one. <laughs> then in 2005, I opened my first place, Taim. And of course, my dad's hog was on the menu. He was super proud. My dad taught me a valuable lesson, to always stay true to yourself, even with the price of embarrassing yourself or your children today as a grown-up i can see that the things that embarrassed me most as a kid is the same things that make me love him so much my dad passed away four years ago and i miss him every day but sometimes when i close my eyes i can still smell this hug feeling the house i grew up in thank you
1: Wow, what a pair of stories! Thank you both for sharing them with us. So now I want Kubane with hug and <laughs> some <laughs> chilbe. We're we're gonna get there. <laughs> so. It's very exciting today in the studio because we have Gil joining us from Tel Aviv, and we have Anat right here with us, and it feels like we're right here with us in New York, and it feels like we are all together, and I think in this pandemic, it's the closest we can get, so I'm thrilled.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can even fight about Tzchuk because I heard in this wonderful, wonderful story Anna, that your dad was using shatas for Tzchuk. My God! What a blasphemy! <laughs> I'm sure the schog was wonderful. You know, every every Yemenite family has their own secret recipe for schog. With with uh, with our schog, there you use other kind. You use other peppers and. Uh,
2: S- like what? Uh, he, he used to have a few things that he mixed, but Shata used to pick them up very carefully.
0: Yeah. No, our schug is, uh, we call it the seven ingredients schug. So it's very easy to remember. It's coriander, chili, green chili peppers, and then... When you say it,
2: coriander, is cilantro, yeah?
0: Uh, yes. And yeah, okay. fresh cilantro. <laughs> and then it's the dry spices, salt, pepper, cumin, and... Uh, um, cardamom. or no Cardamom, of course. Yes. Okay.
1: Okay, we're getting right to the heart of it right away. I love it. And no oil, Um, of course. No oil? No
0: oil, no oil, no. Hmm. Ah. Okay. So so So
1: you'll have... Don't give all the secrets away right here. (laughs) There is no secret. (laughs) There is no secret. Wait, uh, so what peppers? I need to know now. Green chili
0: peppers.
1: (laughs) Okay. Both of your stories are centered around your childhoods and Yemenite roots. Tell me about that time in Israel and growing up with Yemenite heritage. And that I'll start with you. So I, m- my story is a little bit different because my
2: mom born in Israel in Shabazi. He didn't come on uh, a flying uh, carpet from Yemen. He came, he born in Israel. His family came from Yemen. Uh, and he was a little bit more, you know, he grew up in Tel Aviv, very modern. Back then he was a very famous athlete in his you know on m- most of his life um, but and he wasn't the the yemenite that you know the the yaman was very came from yaman very poor the food was based on flour since they don't have much money i remember my grandpa used to give my grandma once a week few lira to get chicken for shabbat that's the only time they used to eat Protein like meat. The rest of the time, they used to. My dad was telling story that they used to have kind of like a sandwich with margarine and sliced of onion. That was like the highlight. So they were very poor community. It's funny because they were very pure, very poor, but super happy. Like Yamanai known as like very cheerful. They less you know when I see my mom heritage, it's like less complaining,
1: more like they're very happy. And funny and short and dark and beautiful. So were there ever any tension between your two families, like your mom's Persian side and your dad's Yemenite side? Did you feel that at all growing up? Yeah, you know, all culture
2: thinks they are better than others. This is the funniest thing. You will see that in every culture. The Persian will think they're much smarter or more educated than the. So there is always that kind of things, but it's not something that affects us in a way that, you know, so you see that everywhere. It's not just between Persian and Yemenite. In my house, it's you will see that in every other house, you know, like the, the always thinks he always thinks you better than others.
0: I wanna add something about Yemenites. Something very strange that I noticed that whenever a person is half Yemenite or a quarter Yemenite, he always would say I'm i I'm Yemenite. I, I always thought I that that Einat was totally Yemenite. I, it's only now that I hear that she has Persian background. <laughs> Because for some reason, although it's true, Yemenites were the poorest of the poor, it, you always felt privileged to be a Yemenite. And uh, you always were proud of your heritage. And uh, I grew up a bit earlier than Einat did. I was born in the in 1962. And, and I felt like the Kubane. I felt that everybody should kneel down when I enter the room because I am Yemenite. Come on. We are the best. We are tops. So yeah, I think that being Yemenite is is really, is fun. It's, it's good.
2: It's true. You're usually gonna uh, um, uh, put more emphasis on being Yemenite, especially than Persian. But yes. Uh, Although but personally,
0: I think that you're very lucky because Persian, the Persian cuisine is the best in the world. I think enough. if they ask me which cuisine is number one in the world, I would say Persian, for sure. Really? Yes. It's smart. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's 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 rich. Uh, it's majestic, it's it's uh, sophisticated, yeah. it has everything, it's light, it's 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 the complete opposite of the Yemenite cuisine. But
2: the fu- but the funny back in the days they have the, you know, they have that kind of um uh, cultural myth about every culture. So Yemenite are very cheap and also Persian. So for me to say that I'm half Yemenite, half
1: Persian, <laughs> it's like they start with the jokes, it's endless. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like the Israel of today has changed? Like, do you still, in the in terms of becoming more of a melting pot, did you feel that when you both grew up, all, the, the different groups were sep- separated more, like Yemenite, Persians, Ashkenazi, like everyone kind of, you know, had their lane? And do you feel like something has changed now in Israel?
0: So I would say that in the 70s and definitely in the 60s, you you all remembered the old country, yes? If if you were an Israeli, your parents were from the old country. Maybe they didn't even know know Hebrew that well. So both Einat and myself are lucky to be from different families that, that, that immigrated to Israel much earlier. All of my grandparents were already born in Israel or in Palestine. But if we talk about, you know, general Israelis, uh, uh, they all remembered where they came from, and they all heard the languages of the old country, and they all ate the the, the food of the old country. Nowadays, it's, you know, it's more than 50 years later, and uh, we already sit on our land. We were born here. We breathe the air of Israel. This is what we know if you want to speak another language, you can you can see that my English is a bit broken. You have to learn it and you have to, you know, to, to work hard in order to be fluent in another language. And I think personally, I think that nowadays we are becoming more and more Arab or more and more Middle Eastern. So we are sort of, we belong to the land that we live in and to the Levant, let's say. But if we talk about the 60s and 70s, uh, the diaspora was very present in Israel still.
2: Yeah, I have story of my mom because she came from Iran at age of 10. And she been in, uh, how you said, Ma'abarot.
0: Housing camps, housing projects, yes.
2: So basically, she was in the camps with different cultures that nobody speak each other language. So it was super... So the story are very interesting. Like, she didn't speak Hebrew. It took her time and... Uh, the other things I ask myself, why my mom did all this Yamanite food from scratch, malawach. I learned how to do malawach when I was probably eight. And then I realized nobody knew what is that. There is n- you can't find it back then in a store. You have to make it from scratch because nobody sold that. And now you'd ask anyone in Israel they know what is malawach and jahrun. It's a very common thing. So even in America, now I'm doing malawach and people familiar with it. But back then, nobody. I need to introduce that to my friend. I need to explain them about this food. It was very, very foreign.
0: Yeah, and people came from difficulty to the young state of Israel. I, I, the said my sad story that I have to share uh, when when we're dealing with this topic is that uh, you are talking, about your grandmother who nobody knew what she was cooking, or she had to learn from her moms, etc., from her mom, etc. But I have a publishing house and I publish other people's books. And uh, when when I was publishing a book of uh, Ashkenazi food, all of the people that we interviewed, uh, uh, Polish, uh, Ukrainian, uh, Lithuanian, etc., that, that we interviewed that were already grandmothers in modern Israel, said, I had nobody to learn from because all this generation was erased. So we're talking about different kinds of the loss of culture, be it by immigration, or be it, God forbid, by Holocaust. And they all went through a certain trauma of being uprooted. And little by little, they were trying to recreate the tastes of their heritage. And this is something that is very dear to me. Although, again, I didn't have it as a kid, because I was totally Israeli. My grandmother was totally Israeli, etc. But when I saw other kids and at their homes, they were, you know, trying to pick up the pieces.
1: I definitely am going to think about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll just quickly share that as, as someone who's a third generation New Yorker, you know, my grandparents were born here, and they hardly held on to any recipes or traditions, because for them, what they wanted to do was assimilate to American culture. Mm. And while of course they were culturally Jewish, they wanted nothing more than to be American. They changed their name. You know, they um, went out into the workforce. They had children that they wanted to be American. So in a way it's it's parallel to what you're saying and in a way it's on another path. So I think No, no, no. I um, I, I,
0: I, I, yeah. I take your point and I think that we all felt yeah. it as as children, you know you always as children you, you you're very sensitive and you understand stuff even without saying it. You know, there were houses where I entered and I, I knew that my friends were ashamed of the pronunciation of their parents and uh, or that they would serve me different kinds of food than the food that they were having, etc. Now, it's not that we grew up in difficulty or poverty or whatever. How lucky we are that we grew up in an independent state that cared for us and nurtured us and loved us and were proud of it. It's, I'm not complaining here. It's just that I, I respect what these generations went through in order to give me this great gift.
1: Yeah, but this is a Jewish podcast, Gil. So of course there has to be complaints. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, <laughs> I mean, aggravation. I know. We'll get, I, know we'll, I know. We'll get to that. And <laughs> speaking of family and parents, I want to go back to her story, and it, it has an element that I think, as we've talked about today, almost everyone can relate to. Being embarrassed by a parent. What was it about the shug at the restaurant that was particularly embarrassing?
2: It wasn't just at the restaurant. Every wedding, bar mitzvah, every special event, every every everything, he always have a jar in my mama purse everywhere he went. It like it's embarrassing because it's the first time we actually sitting down in a. It was in a, in a Malayashan in Tel Aviv. I remember even we go from Nabrak, we take a car, like the whole kind of scenario was very unique and new for us. So for him to actually, maybe I was a chef even when I was young, like just the ideas that he takes cook and put on a sweet and sour duck or whatever was that, it just like make no sense. And the the ideas that is maybe, you know, people looking at us, you know, there's some of like a self-conscious and feeling like you know we don't know the environment of being in a fancy restaurant, so everything is like feeling a little bit squeezed. I think that's that's what it is.
0: Yeah, in, in my in my family, you always had to be proper, and you had to be, of course, ready for the invitation from the Queen of England for dinner, which was <laughs> in the mail. It was clear that it was going to come, so we would all hear stories about you know. Uh, indecent behavior in 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 restaurants, in weddings, in dinners, etc. I remember my... First of all, my parents would always look at us the way we ate, and they would say, sit straight, use cutlery. If you're going to misbehave, we're going to give you to adoption in a kibbutz. And this was, you know, this was the... the, 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 the and my mom would say, and children, I want you to know that in kibbutzim, she would whisper this women don't shave their legs. And it was clear that this is <laughs> black death. But my grandmother, who came from really, you know, a very well-to-do and self-proclaimed noble family and the founders of the land, etc. So she used to tell us the story of how she had dinner with the king of France with my grandfather, the son of Eliezer ben Yoda, and how... He misbehaved. So so she said, so there we were sitting at dinner with the king of France. And I would say, but grandma, did France have kings when you were young? So she said, shut up. If he wasn't the king of France, he should have been the king of France. He was very rich. <laughs> you
1: know, there's two things that I, I really want to ask you. One is in the U.S., a majority, not all, but a majority of Chinese restaurants are considered casual. Right? It's something mm. that you... You do not in the seventies and eighties in
2: Israel. So talk to me about that. Yeah, that's why when I actually told the story I said Asian and not Chinese, because the the the, the first things that will come to any American is like the things with the pictures that is three dollars for popcorn shrimp and uh, what they have, sweet and sour, sesame chicken. So no. Uh, that was a very fine dining. You know, they have a cart that they brought
1: a whole deck and carve on a table. So, no, it's not the Chinese that we know here. And so it was very formal and it was very fancy. And there was like a white tablecloth and it was a big event as, you know, as we learn in your story. So I, I just bring me back to your childhood there and, and you as a child and you're sitting here. Everyone is so excited. You're dressed up and your dad is just reaching for that jar. Like, what are you feeling at that moment?
2: So that's what we look around with the eyes like, okay, people are watching, people are noticing, and he doesn't care. And I think my mom probably tried to kick him under the table, and he's like, just don't. Like, he would do what, like, in when it comes to food, and his hoog and his, like, Yemenite heritage food, which is was very connected to, he didn't care. She was complaining every weekend. To stop eating chilbe because on Sunday it would smell the whole house. And she was embarrassed to walk with him in the street because, you know, the chilbe, which is a fenugreek sauce for the Yemenite, will make you come out of your pores and like get stinky. And for years, for years, years, they would live in together. It was like, no.
1: Gil, how is the Jerusalem of your childhood different from today? Uh-huh.
2: <laughs>
0: it's it's the complete opposite. My, my Jerusalem no longer exists. You know, it's it's sad. My from my high school, I think that maybe we were uh, two hundred kids that graduated high school from the Hebrew Gymnasia in nineteen eighty. I think that only five of us stayed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is much more religious. is much more tense is much less tolerant. It's a lovely place to visit with great people, of course, but it's totally different.
1: What What do you think contributed to that?
0: I think Israel politica- politically is very different than what it used to be. There is this very big question of the occupied territories and there are many other political questions that are tearing us apart. And you do see people wanting to live with people who hold the same values. So you would see the state of Tel Aviv and the state of Jerusalem and the settlements. And they are very different. These are my brothers and these are people whom I love. But I'm not sure that as a gay left winger, I would like to live in Jerusalem.
1: One... Detail from your story struck me. Um, you said that your mom was your grandfather was your grandmother's favorite. Your mom was your grandmother's favorite, even though she had married into the family. My my mom um, was
0: everybody's favorite. My mom was okay. God's favorite.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because uh, traditionally, there's a kind of tense relationship, to say the least, between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Yeah. So w- your mom, when you said that in the story, that your mom was the favorite, even though she married into the family. I, I really wanted to know about that.
0: Well, first of all, she really was. That's not, you know, that's not just me saying she was really my grandmother's favorite. And also, let's let's give some, some background here. My father was eight years younger than she was. He was her third husband, the first one who was eventually Jewish, the first one was an American. The second one was French, totally Christian. And my father was apparently the third. He it, it may be the fourth or fifth because she used to hide from us how many times she got married. So she was a very, very... And she was extremely beautiful and very smart and had a wonderful sense of humor. It was very easy to fall in love with her. And everybody admired her and everyone wanted her company. Now, my father wasn't, you know... Uh, wasn't a very small. My father was a star. He was the head news announcer of of, of Israel when there was no television. So, and he was very good looking and dark, etc. Whenever I go into a room in Israel nowadays, always an elderly lady would come to me and say, "I used to know your father." And I say, "That's very sweet." And said, "No, no, no. Closely, I used to know him closely." <laughs> so, so they were both. They were two movie stars, and 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 they were. I think that this is what gave me the opportunity to be a writer because you, when you grow up under the burning light of two such figures, you know, you have a lot of stories to tell.
1: Yeah, so you really had had no choice but to become a star in your own right.
0: Uh, a, a starlet, let's say.
1: Okay, I'll take it. Um, not going back to something you said in your story, um, that between your Yemenite dad and your Persian mom – they didn't spend money on anything that they could make <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the other money saving things that they did i didn't really save
2: money but it was about the the state of mind like i maybe 10 years ago my brother and myself my brother living in new york as well we went back to israel to visit and one day we told my dad if we can drop us in tel aviv we want to have some coffee and Shane King. back then when Shane King in Tel Aviv was really like, you know, everything going on, Friday afternoon, there is a lot of like parties. So my brother and myself want to go and have some coffee. And my dad looked at us and said, but there is coffee at home. <laughs> 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 All the way to Tel Aviv to pay a few baht, you know, like it's just the state of mind of like why you spend money on things that, you know, you can get here. So my mom, she's a seamstress so she have... Uh, we used to get all our clothes. She used to make all our clothes, so in everything. Listen, I used to be em- embarrassed be- from so many things, but I have to tell you, this is what I said, that the end of the day, all these kind of things became the engine of all my career. Like, I can... I have a sewing machine at home. I can do a lot of different things and I know how to cook today a little. Um, you know, it's it's just like it's became very beneficial in my life all all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, she never bought class clothes. She have a home shop. She used to make us everything. You know, And when they look for shopping or anything, it's everything in bargain stores and things like that.
1: I can totally relate to that. Growing up, my mom used to make curtains and pillows and Mm -hmm. also sometimes clothing. And I never really thought twice about it. And now, looking back, I'm like, wow, she was so incredible. Like, I still have a shower curtain that she made in my bathroom. And every time someone comes over, people ask me about it. Like, where did you get that? And I'm like, well... My mom made it. Yeah, but for me, it changed a lot because
2: I became the biggest spender. I think mm-hmm. it's the ap- what's happened. It's happened the opposite. I want, I I just can't save any money because I want to spend it on on any things I couldn't spend as a kid. So it's I don't know.
1: Yeah. yeah, well, I I love the part in your story when you talk about your dad and how he played by the rules and how he was like watching her mom to see if she was evading the taxes or anything like that. Where do you think that instinct came from for him?
2: I think it's something with the way he grew up. His mom was um, his mom was. Uh, there were very humble people, very straight, very honest people. Um, I remember if I asked him to change money when I come to visit with dollars, uh, he always asked me to count. I'm like, what am I going to count your ma-? He said, you have to count. You're not getting – like things like that he have in his head. He used to get a sticker on his car the uh, every year, the careful driver. He gets the things. He, then he was a referee of a handball for 30 years. He traveled around the world and he got like tons of like uh, kind of uh, – trophy than things of the best referee. You know, he, he was very it was funny because my mom liked to manipulate, not manipulate but lie on mani- like so she's exactly the opposite <laughs> so we grew up with very too extreme. But yes, it's something I really adore. It was embarrassing when people ask him question and he don't know how to lie and he answers straight. You know, he was a straight shooter and he just answer and I'm like, "Oh no, no, you can answer. You can answer that." <laughs> so And when he died, uh, now it's five years ago, when he died, I remember that my cousin came and he said, you know what? Even your dad once told me that I gain a lot of weight. I never got really hurt by him because I know he didn't want to hurt anyone. It wasn't to make you feel bad. It just something came. I didn't have any filter, so he just say it. So the, everybody loved him. He have hundreds of people came to his funeral. It was just so fascinating to see how much everybody adore him, even though he embarrassed them as much as he embarrassed me probably many times or tell them things that they're like, oh, my God, you can't say that. They knew that is His heart was in the right place and he was, you know, he just couldn't help himself.
1: A question for you both about some more food. Aside from the kubane and the suq mentioned in your stories, like, what are the other Yemenite foods that you grew up eating? Gil? Uh,
0: Not much. I must say ftut, ftut, which is a leftover dish. You break matzah into yesterday's chicken soup and you eat it as a sort of a porridge. But that's about it. Yemenite, The Yemenite cuisine is very, very poor and it also doesn't have a lot of dishes. Now, it's true that this is exaggerated. Nowadays, you know, you see books coming out of, of the whole, the wonders of the Yemenite cuisine. But when you talk about what Yemenites ate at home in the 60s and 70s, The menu in Israel, the menu was very, very modest. So I don't think that many other Yemenite dishes got to our plates. And also, don't forget that I did not live with my Yemenite grandmother. So the food that I grew up on was was North African, etc., from my mother's side.
1: Why do you think the cuisine was so modest? Uh, They didn't have money.
0: It's as simple as that. They didn't have money. They didn't have the ingredients. Maybe some of the traditions were left in the old countries and were lost for a while until it was fashionable to really dig them up from from wherever they were hiding. So even when you got to a Yemenite restaurant, even today in Israel, when you get into a Yemenite restaurant, the, the menu would be very concise. Great food. I love it. But it's not as big as, let's say, a menu in a Chinese restaurant or even in a Polish restaurant, etc. It would be working class so, food.
2: My dad used to go to a synagogue that uh, it's Yemenite, Yamanech Hatuka Synagogue for years. It's in a family house. It's a tiny synagogue, and they used to make this sabaya that I remember. I was eight or ten years old, and for years I have this taste in my mouth that I needed back. And for years, I'm like, I need to challenge myself. And I found some actually Yamanite here, not Jewish, that doing sabaya. So I was r- researching and finding that. So that's something I didn't grow up, but I thought is fascinating food. Uh, we did grow up with malawakh that we learned how to make and jachnun and a lot of chilbe sauce, which is, it's delicious. Uh, but there is not much more. It's most of the stuff was uh, and and a lot of soups. So I grew up with a lot of Yamanite soups. Uh, The one thing my mom never made and I learned to make when I was growing up later on is lachuch. So that's the one thing she never make at home. Um, I think just because she didn't like it, that's the only reason. Um, But yeah, it was
1: all about dough. What role do you think that these dishes have in modern Israeli cuisine today?
2: Everybody know what is Malawach now. Everybody know what is jachnun. There is tons of shops that they will deliver you on Saturday morning at jachnun Shalima. And there is like so many things like that. So it's very fascinating for me as a kid. You know, and I I don't know, I I hear a lot of story about kids that was embarrassed by the food or by the Yemenite and Mizrahi food with the friends and the neighbors. And I think today it's such a cultural mix that people are very embraced and proud of it. It's something that shift and change a lot. Since we were young. And actually, uh, uh,
0: for the last two years, Kubane is just, you know, the cat's pajamas in Israel. Everybody loves Kubane restaurants. Top notch restaurants are serving Kubane. It's called a Yemenite brioche. My grandmother is rolling in her grave.
2: I know that's what I said, and it's always upset me. Yes. And it's not upset me anymore because I'm getting old, and there is I need to choose my battle where to really get upset. But when I saw f- some chefs starting the kubane and the brioche, the yamanite brioche, and they bake it for forty minutes, and it's nothing to do with cubane, and they don't have the yeast smell and the color, and it's just like almost like a croissant on a pat, and I'm like, I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm not getting upset about it anymore. But it's not; it's totally far away of being cubane.
0: Uh, there are many wonders of the Yemenite cuisine that are still to be, you know, learned. Like, for instance, Zom, which is a wonderful basic soup of, of sort of yogurt and bread and maybe some Hilbe. And, uh, but it's it's not fit for the Instagram age. It's ugly food. It looks like somebody <laughs> ate it before you did, so you know it doesn't shoot well. So I guess that the promotion would be a bit difficult. No, I think that Yemenite cuisine gets all the respect it needs. I'm not. Uh, I'm not complaining here.
1: I said you had to complain on this podcast. I will and complain about doing doing lots of stuff,
0: but not about Yemenite <laughs> food. <laughs> Let's talk about my partner for a second.
1: Ah, okay, now that's a, that's a different show, but maybe we'll do that one next time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I wanted to leave you with a cliffhanger, you know.
1: <laughs> okay, exactly, exactly. So the one the one thing that we could do for just a moment, which I think will be fun if you're both game, is that our community from around the world always has questions for us. Sometimes they're emailing us. Sometimes we get comments on Instagram. But we have a pretty uh, a special voice memo that someone sent in. So I'd love to play it and uh, see if, you know, maybe we'll get into an argument about it. I don't know. Let's argue, Gil. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hi, Amanda. My name is Jessica,
0: and I live in Ridgewood, Queens. I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed the Liz Newmark episode. It was incredibly moving. I have a question about latkes. Do you think of latkes as a specifically Jewish food, or is it something more universal? Thanks, and keep up the good work. I believe Latkes is totally universal. You know, when I was lecturing in Poland, the Ukraine, Russia, etc., they're all having Latkes. And I say, but it's not Hanukkah. Come on, relax. So I think that it's, but potatoes, you know, are universal. They're not, they don't belong to us.
2: <laughs> Yesterday, I have an argument with somebody on um, Instagram, and he said, why are you showing potato? This is come from Northern Europe. And I got so upset. Potatoes not come from Northern Europe. It's come from South America. But anyway, it was really funny. Uh, people think that um, <laughs> challah is Jewish food. Challah, Polish. And there is a lot of things like that, that the Jews brought, uh, if it's to Israel or America, wherever they travel, they brought from the heritage and the country they were there. So it's our argument that uh, we're not going to argue, actually.
0: Uh,
1: he answered that.
0: Unfortunately, <laughs> we're not going to argue about this.
1: <laughs> Do you each have a latke recipe that you like to make? Yeah. So I made...
2: So for Hanukkah, I actually gonna make eight recipes every day. I don't believe I'm doing that, but I'm doing video for every day of Hanukkah and I'm giving fried food. Yeah, <laughs> let's gain all the twenty pounds I last. <laughs> so uh, I did two latke. I did one arook which is kind of baked potato latke, it's Iraqi one. So aruk is just baked potato. I put uh, cilantro, parsley, scallion, onion. Barat, cumin, paprika, a, mm. a little bit egg, delicious. And the other latke I did actually yesterday, it was carrot, sweet potato, and potato with a lot of herbs and sage and rosemary. And it was delicious because it's a little bit easier with less potato that get, you know. So, um, yeah, I make latke. My kids like, like, like latke. I'm coming over. Please. We said in Hebrew, you can never scare the whore with a dick. I always said that when people said, "We come in on Friday," I'm like, "Come." What a it's nice, what me. a nice <laughs>
0: proverb! I'm sure it comes from wait, the wait,
1: Bible. Wait, what? Wait, can you repeat? Can you
2: repeat that? Yeah, you can scare a whore with a dick. You know, as every time somebody tells me, "I'm coming for," I'm like, oh, "My house is open. I always
1: cooking. You can come."
0: Yeah. yeah, in Hebrew, it's wonderful Words because w- it rhymes. Okay,
1: speaking of Hebrew, my very last <laughs> question—it's more of a request. I need some help from both of you. I need a crash course in how to properly say schug because all the Israelis around me are always making fun of me. I never can say it correctly. So I need a lesson. But I don't expect you to
2: say correctly. I, I, I have two Israeli kids, and my son, when I ask something, they say, lorote. I'm like, I tell you, are not going to say Lorotse.
1: <laughs> you're not getting
2: anything. Lorote. I want a hala. Um, schug. Sug, but Gil, I think Gil can do the.
0: It's a sug, like, but the the, ah. the, the 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 ultimate test is not sug. It's lippuah. Try to say lippuah. What well, we say with that l'hooh. when an Ashkenazi tries to say lippuah, you know, he gets a. Something a problem with a jaw or something. It's l'chuch.
2: Like, oh. So, so my, do- my daughter is very Ashkenazi. She's exactly like my French husband. She looked like him. She behaved like them. And she loved l'chuch. So every time she asked for l'chuch, I said, until you're not saying like a Yemenite, there is no l'chuch.
1: <laughs> okay. Rate me on one to ten. <laughs> Seven.
0: Seven. Ah. Okay.
1: Room for improvement. I appreciate this lesson. <laughs> Thank you so much to you both. Gil and Enat for joining us for our season finale, our very first season finale of Schmaltzi. It was a true pleasure. Thank you. And for our listeners, thank you so much for being with us. And don't worry, we'll be back next year. Be sure to check out the recipes for Gil's pomelo candies and Enat's schug and festive spread on our Jewish Food Society digital archive. It's jewishfoodsociety.org. Happy holidays and here to 2021. Hopefully it will be a little better. Schmalti is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in New York City. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners all around the world. Send us your thoughts, comments, and questions. Just record a voice memo right on your phone and email it to hi at jewishfoodsociety.org so we can share it right here. Also, we're new. Be a mensch and rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show multi is produced and edited by Elon Benatar our executive producer is Nama Shafi. and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. until next time I'm your host Amanda Dell oh,